Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 25th, 2024. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiplett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about the show, one we've been trying to put together for a little while now. Uh, new, uh, or actually he's been on the job several months now, but uh, Democratic Party of Georgia Executive Director Kevin Alassanoi is going to be our guest here in about 20 minutes. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about Kevin, about his vision for Georgia and the Democratic Party of Georgia, but he comes from uh, New Jersey where he had previously served as um, Executive Director, and so he's familiar with New Jersey politics, and um, obviously they have a really interesting Senate race. We're going to uh, talk to Kevin about as well after we cover Georgia, but until then, got a lot of issues going on, and one I don't know that any of us would have seen coming, say, two weeks ago um, in the specifics, maybe in the generalities, because I think it does fit into a narrative, um, but just in the past week, a judge in Alabama in a case involving, I believe, um, how some uh, you know IVF uh, embryos were handled, but they were dropped. Um, he ruled that somebody could be liable because he saw the um, embryos, the frozen embryos, uh, for possible you know pregnancies down the road as a human life. And so that just opened up a whole can of legal, legislative, all kind of worms, if you will. Um, Catherine, uh, what were your thoughts on this ruling that came out? I was not surprised. This is something that when these laws were going into effect, we uh, we talked about them a lot um, in my previous job and also just as part of the conversation in the reproductive justice and reproductive health uh, space. Um, these were these were concerns about IVF and other, you know, th- just the whole gamut of reproductive health care. So. I'm not surprised that it happened, and I'm not surprised it happened in Alabama. And it should be interesting to see how it's resolved. Yeah, and, and, and the case came out, I guess, maybe even a little more than a week ago. I guess the, the bigger issue that really, um, I guess, really struck a nerve and got people's attention is the University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, I guess possibly the largest medical uh, school in the state, um, this involved a lot of this, they first said they were going to pause all IVF treatments because of possible legal repercussions. And then since then, at least two more um, major providers of in vitro fertilization have followed suit and said they're going to pause things until they can find out more information. And um, they may pause them, you know, for indefinitely in the state of Alabama. And those... Um, you know, frozen eggs and whatever ha- whatever you have uh, in those facilities, those are not going to be transported um, and because they're, you know, they just don't know the what could happen um, legally, either criminally or civilly, based on this ruling by this judge. And I think that really got a lot of attention, too. Uh, Tim, what is your take on what's happened in Alabama? Yeah, well, uh, UAB, by the way, is like the eighth largest uh, medical school in the United States. It's not just a an in-state thing. This had uh, repercussions all over the country. Other states are looking at this to do this sort of thing too. But but this this particular case now came about because some frozen embryos were dropped accidentally on the floor at a hospital late last year and destroyed. And the parents sued and lost because the lower courts ruled that they are not people. 
the Supreme Court of Alabama reversed that decision based on something that they did in the Constitution like six years ago. And it was amended to read that it's the public policy of the state to recognize and support the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children. And they just did a very liberal interpretation of that in the Supreme Court and ruled that that also applied to frozen embryos and it has opened a Pandora's box of just all kinds of problems and blowbacks and uh, we're going to hear a lot about this for a long time and watch the legislatures and Congress in particular scramble and try to clean this up a little bit. Yeah, I think there's like three strands that I I see, and if y'all see other ones, add to it. Um, But there is a uh, a legal one as far as people that are interested in um, IVF treatments, either um, they're from Alabama and that's just, you know, the closest facility to them, or maybe even out of state um, because, you know, they may have a better clinic than Mississippi, people that live on the state borders of the state um, that would have gone to UAB or other, other places. That's going to be off the table for them just to use that, and so that's a, a strand. Another strand is going to be, you know, Alabama, if we look at states, they probably by no means have the most progressive um, reputation. Um, And so this does nothing to help that. And then finally, what we do here on this show, we talk politics, there's a big-time political strand. We're going to get to the political strand in just a minute, but Catherine – do you see kind of all three of those, and did I maybe miss one? Um, no, I think those are the primary ones. Um, it, it's 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 really a tangled up uh, mess legally. Like that, I don't know how they're gonna. I mean, there's all there's there's all kinds of. Um, so does the? I mean, there's all you can you know carry this to all kinds of extremes, like what does it mean for um, citizenship? Does that mean that if you're conceived in Alabama, if you're on vacation from France and you conceive your child in Alabama, does that mean they're a U.S. citizen because now they're a person? I mean, that sounds crazy, but, you know, there's just there's a lot of – a lot of legal um, entanglements that none of these people thought about when they wrote this language in the bill, in the in the um, constitution. So, yeah, I think those are the but those are the primary ones: legal, political, and and health delivery. Yeah, yeah, I think you've maybe thought of a whole new um, term related to anchor babies. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know it sounds it sounds ridiculous, but if you if you carry this to the degree that these people are carrying it, it starts to it's it's pretty scary, really. Yeah, and and so um, let's kind of talk about uh, you talk a lot about the health one and situations out of that. Um, Tim, I saw that you know a lot of people came out that didn't come out politically. Obviously, a lot came out politically, but I saw that. Uh, Nick Saban's daughter, probably one of the most famous and beloved people in the state of Alabama, at least for probably 60% of the population, um, you know, talked about his grandchild, this, um, his daughter's uh, child, was through IVF, and so kind of brought that home, although there's probably almost everybody in somewhere knows somebody that used some type of, if not this process, something because they had trouble, you know, um, conceiving. And so it really hits home to a lot of people that either A, aren't very political, or B, aren't very, um, you know, progressive. Yeah, well, um, I'd I'd seen a a study that showed that as high as some year 16% of the population uh, that is trying to conceive 
uh, uses this. It's very common practice and has been for many, many, many years. Um, on the political end of it, um, Democrats in Congress, and this kind of flew under the radar with all the other stuff that goes on up there, but uh, they introduced legislation back in January called the Access to Family Building Act, and it was designed to protect these uh, clinics that do this because with you know Roe v. Wade being overturned a couple of years ago, uh, a lot of people saw that things like this could happen, and naturally... Congress has taken no action on it because, you know, the Democrats don't decide in the House what legislation hits the floor. And uh, this mess is really getting into the tall weeds, isn't it? It is. And so now let's kind of talk about the political side of this. Um, I I do think there is a certain portion – uh, of the you know the really true right wing base that doesn't like anything that involves too much science. Uh, they came out years ago against uh, stem cell research, and so they probably think you know the only good baby's one that's you know conceived the old fashioned way. Um, but as we know, people are having children later, and that's sometimes leading to um, you know the more need for this, and so they're just not with reality. Uh, but then there's some other Republicans that I guess they know how bad of a deal uh, this is politically. The poll numbers on this, it rebrings up all the issues they had uh, getting close to two years ago now when the, the first Roe decision came down. And a lot of people said there's going to be more stuff out there, and some people might not have believed them. Now I think this is like this is the kind of stuff we were talking about. So. Politically, a lot of Republicans, they know this is a huge issue for them, and I think Democrats see this as a huge issue to say, we told you so all along. Um, This is why we were serious about this issue. Catherine, what do you think this will mean, I guess, for the rest of the 2024 election cycle? Well, I think both both our lead candidates have come out and said they're in favor of IVF. Um, of you know that it shouldn't be illegal. Um, Trump just made that statement yesterday, and I can only assume that uh, President Biden is you know in agreement. Um, so probably won't have much impact on the presidential election, but it could have some impact on local elections in Alabama and then in other states that have similar language in their constitutions. So uh, we'll have to see, you know, how, how, I mean, in order to ramp up a a campaign against things like this is very expensive and you have to figure out the best messaging and all that stuff. So we'll have to see how they respond. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you two reasons why I don't know that Donald Trump would get off scot free uh, with this. I know his statement that he made, but one, um, if he was the type of politician that poor like, yeah, I trust that guy. He says what he means, and he means what he says. That would be one thing. I don't think anybody has that perception of Donald Trump. So he, he's low on the trust meter, uh, even for people that probably voted for him one of the two times. I mean, a lot of people I think deep down. Um, are kind of on this game, not the folks that have the flags and everything else and wear the hats, but the other folks. Um, And then second, you know how just a few weeks ago um, the Democrats passed a border bill and, um, you know, gave the Republicans a lot of what they want, were ready to – or they were ready to pass it. Republicans just didn't do it and just sunk the whole thing. And, you know, one would think that the people in polls would say, oh, well, the Democrats are actually going to do this. I'm going to give them more credit now. Well, people see Republicans, oh, they're good on that issue. So Democrats really so far have not moved on that poll number. I think people see Democrats as somebody that protects um, reproductive rights or good on science issues. So I think this is going to be some blowback on the Republicans 
up and down the ticket from Donald Trump all the way down to, you know, anything that's legislative, um, even in the state level. Um, Tim, what's your take on it? Well, uh, you, you know, we have talked and talked and talked on this show uh, for the last couple of years about Democrats overperforming at the polls and the midterms and in the special elections. And I think a common thread that's been going through it was, uh, you know, women's rights, uh, you know, to abortion and, and, and other services that were denied them when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and in particular a woman's right to choose. Uh, I believe that maybe a pretty long-term result of all this is that that's going to be an issue until the Republicans articulate or clarify what it even is they want to do, and especially on a national level. They have not met this issue well at all, and these sort of things keep coming up, like this in vitro fertilization down, you know, in Alabama, and they don't know how to handle it or what to say about it. Trump's got his nerve saying anything about it. He's the one that put all them judges on the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade, as yeah. he promised he would do, and he can't deny that. So, you know, the Republicans have, have got a fundamental problem, whether they believe that or not, and I just got a feeling that this year they may try to do a repeat of 2016 where they say, you know, maybe it's just better to just pass nothing, do nothing until uh, the election, and maybe we can slip by and win that. And then we can do pass whatever we want to pass. It's beginning to look like that. They're not passing anything. But this issue's not going to go away. It's just not. I thought it might settle down after a while, but you know it hasn't. We just keep overvoting in these election Democrats are, and that's the common thread, isn't it? Yes, and really, I mean, we knew that this issue was part of the reason that we're seeing results like we saw in three states uh, just the other week in New York in a congressional state race, in Pennsylvania in a state legislative race, and even in a, a race in Oklahoma the Democrats didn't win. They lost by some narrow margin and some, like, double-digit, um, like, big-time, not 11 points, but big-time double-digit Republican district. They shaved that uh, margin down to, I want to say, like, eight points. So there was three pieces of information last little bit. Interestingly enough, the next data point we get in these special elections is a state house seat in Huntsville. It's a seat that Republicans won by eight points. Um, in Huntsville, Alabama, by the way, for those that just – when they hear Huntsville, they don't think Alabama. Um, the Republicans won it by about eight points. So before this case, or before this ruling came out, it was the kind of seat that might have flipped anyway. Now I think it's even more um, persuadable, if you will. And so now if that seat flips Democratic by even more than a point or two, and then there may even be some exit polling. I mean, I would think this is the kind of thing that exit pollsters might even want to come out there and find out what, or do a focus group, find out what voters are thinking on this race since it is right in the state in which this happened. You may see some interesting data come out of this. Now, if the Republican holds the seat, all bets are off. Maybe at least in a state like Alabama, that judge, you know, he had the pulse of the people maybe. I don't think so, but um, – that kind of seat and that kind of race coming up in early March is going to tell us. Um, Catherine, what's your thoughts on that uh, that Alabama seat and this issue? Well, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but, again, uh, to, mount a, to you know, mount a race to, you know, use this uh, messaging in a campaign, like you said, you, need a, you probably need focus groups to – to really get around, get a handle on what the best message is. And all these things cost money. And, 
you know, there's not a lot of money in politics in Alabama. So uh, we'll have to see, you know, how that goes. It's not just simple to say, oh, yeah, we should do this. You have to, you know, have resources to back up your argument. And in an election year when everybody's, you know, giving their money to the national campaigns, it's hard in the, at the local level. So. Yeah, and if I'm a Democrat in that race, I'm putting this issue front and center while it's fresh on voters' minds, and I guarantee you the Democrats are going to benefit even in state Senate races in northern Alabama. Yeah. And they're they're going to keep benefiting on this general issue all over the country. Yep. One last note before we welcome on our guest. I drove through that district just about two weeks ago, and I only saw signs for one candidate, and it was Marilyn Lands, um, the Democratic candidate for State House. But right now, we're excited to move back home across the Chattahoochee River to Georgia and welcome the new or the or the current um, executive director of the Democratic Party of Georgia, Kevin Lassinoy. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks, David. Good to be with y'all. All right. Uh, well, right off, uh, you're you know you've been on the job several months now, but uh, we hadn't had the chance to have y'all. So. Uh, tell our listeners, in case they hadn't heard about you, they hadn't met you, just tell our listeners about your, in particular, political background, but then your bio as well. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me, y'all. I, I am a junkie for this stuff like you are uh, and have been doing it really since I was 14 years old. My uh, my freshman high school football coach was a state senator, and uh, in the summer of uh, right before I started my freshman year of, uh, of, of high school football, uh, we would go out and knock doors for him to reduce the number of laps that we would run if we didn't run plays correctly. Um, and so, and so I remember really, I mean, I've had to be like 14 years old standing outside of polling places, doing visibility and handing out lit and knocking doors and all the stuff. And I just was a junkie for this stuff and always had been. I was really um, into social studies and history and and, and uh, particularly U.S. government, and it just kind of stuck and never left me. And so, you know, I went to, to – undergrad at the University of Rhode Island where I grew up and uh, uh, I got a triple major. I I studied politics, history, and economics. Um, But even while I was in college, I worked on a ton of campaigns. Uh, And and every time I did it, I just wanted to learn more because there's such an art to what we do. And, and a lot of it is science, but really that sort of ability to connect with an individual on, an, on, a, on a human level, right, and, and then be able to use that connection to be able to get folks to take a desired action, whether that's, you know, registering to vote or, or, or showing up to their polling place to, to, to vote for your candidate, right? It just always fascinated me. And so uh, the more I've done it and all the different capacities I've been able to do it, the more I've wanted to learn more about how to do it. And it just has been this never-ending cycle. I kind of joke with my executive director colleagues over the around the country, friends don't let friends run state parties. <laughs> Uh, it's probably not the best way uh, uh, to further your career, but this is my third time doing it, and I'm I'm having a ball. And uh, obviously, um, with everything that's coming in Georgia and and, and uh, ahead of us here in November, I thought to myself, you know, where where could I have an opportunity to make a difference? This 100% is one of those places, and I'm looking to. Um, you know, take my little bit and add it to the lot of bit that has happened here in the state for for quite a little bit of time, and and hopefully we can get over the finish line here. But I I I I can't I can't pinpoint one specific moment or one specific thing. I can tell you that 
I've always believed that this was sort of a passion of mine is, is, is um, trying to figure out how to surround uh, elected officials, candidates with a scalable infrastructure that can help them win elections. And that's really what my job is at DPG every day is, is building the kind of team, people infrastructure, the kind of tools, technology infrastructure, and all the other things, right, that help to make elections go. Uh, and so I'm really excited about doing it in Georgia, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next uh, 253 days. And, yes, I am counting. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> yes. Well, we know, uh, we know that obviously this was not just a political decision because you're a family man. So you're coming down from Rhode Island then New Jersey, which I'm sure those are different places, but Georgia is a very different place what kind of intrigued you about Georgia, and what do you find is going to be a little bit different about Georgia than states in the Northeast? Well, listen, I, you know, it, the easy answer to the question is just turn on your television and see what's happened in Georgia over the last five or six years, right? I mean, it, it's just been – there's been an incredible amount of investment in – on both sides, right? Democrats and Republicans on both sides have been spending a lot of time trying to figure out the fundamental question that people asked me when I when I first took on this job, right? It was, is Georgia really a blue state or is this like a product of the Trump kind of era, right? And I think, you know, I'm excited about trying to figure out how to answer that question once and for all. And I really, really do believe, right, that over the next couple of years, we have the opportunity to answer that question um, one way or the other. Uh, the way I sort of describe this, right, is uh, you have states like uh, uh, Nevada and Colorado on one side, and you have states like North Carolina, Florida, and Ohio on the other, right? And I think Georgia's sort of in that middle space, teetering on the one side of like having, going from having federal electoral success to having sustained success at the state level. Uh, and then on the other side, right, like maybe a little bit of federal success, but really struggling, I think, to be able to sustain that success at the state level, right? And and so those are sort of the axes that I see Georgia's in the middle of. And, God, I mean, the opportunity to be able to say that I had a part to play um, in, hand, in, in answering this question absolutely is attractive. If you're asking me the question of what makes Georgia different than Rhode Island or, uh, or New Jersey, let me count the ways for you. Uh, um, uh, Y'all have 159 counties. Uh, 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 Rhode Island has four counties. Uh, New Jersey has 21 counties. Uh, I think – when you do politics in states that are blue, like Rhode Island and New Jersey, you sort of don't appreciate how difficult it is to do persuasion work. Because in most of those elections, right, in those states, you're doing a lot of turnout, right? You are not doing a whole hell of a lot of persuasion. You are just trying to identify your voters and make sure they turn out. In Georgia, there are so many folks um, who are not particularly inclined to start with um, with the Democratic message. And so we have a lot of work to do to remind them that, like, they share our values more than they disagree with us on the issues. Um, and that sort of persuasion work, I would say, is what like very clearly defines the difference between Georgia, Rhode Island, and New Jersey, aside from the size and the culture and the geography and all those types of things. It, it really boils down to there's just not as much persuasion work that gets done um, in northeastern states and blue states. And I imagine in red states too, like true blue red states. You, you were talking earlier, I was listening to, the conversation you were having about Alabama, I imagine there's not a lot of, um, you know, persuasion work that happens on a grand scale in Alabama, right? It's probably just making sure that um, independent-minded voters and Republican voters show up, and that's probably the whole game, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think what, what makes Georgia different, or at least what has made Georgia different is this, and frankly, 
you know, if you track the money and the investment that's come into the state, that's the reality of it is like there is a larger than normal statewide persuadable population in the state and both sides have got to spend resources trying to chart out a vision for where they want to go and how that aligns with where those folks are. And I think, you know, that's not unlike Nevada and Arizona and some of the other states that I mentioned earlier in terms of what their trajectory was. And in some cases, Democrats did it better than others. And, and that's kind of why those states are kind of where they are, at least from my perspective. Yes, well, but keep in mind uh, that I'm old enough to remember back when Alabama had a Democratic senator, Doug Jones, and we had two Republican ones, so things change quick. But listen, before, it, it, go ahead. Yeah, I, was, I was just going to say, listen, I, I think that's totally right, but again, it goes back to that sort of fundamental question. I think, you know, I, I, I won't date myself. I, I'm, I'm much older than my biopic says, though. I, I will say that. Um, but I'm old enough to remember when, you know, Colorado was legitimately a swing state. Like, legitimately, people were not sure whether or not it was going to be red or blue. I think people, uh, uh, our chair, uh, Nakima Williams, like to call it periwinkle. That's the color. Um, but, 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 you know, it takes a lot of work. Um, and having those sort of real conversations to get there. And, and look, um, for every Doug Jones, there's a Sharon Angle on the other side, right? Y'all remember Sharon Angle? She ran against Harry Reid in 2010 and 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 had um, just as, I think, crazy views of the world as did Judge Roy Moore, right? And, and you know, Harry Reid was uh, obviously the leader of the Senate at the time, but, but – um, we've, we've come a long way uh, on the Republican side, right? Uh, uh, it used to be guys like Mitt Romney and, and to some extent Lindsey Graham were sort of the mainstream in the Republican Party, and boy, have they taken just another turn to the left or the right. I don't know really what direction it is, but it's hard to recognize sometimes the orthodoxy of the Republican Party as, a, as it stands today. Yes. Well, we remember them all. We've been on the air since 2007, and we have a political career before that. We remember when the witch tried to run to secede the current president of the United States and Senate in Delaware, all these folks. That's but right. let me pass it over to Catherine for some more questions about Georgia. Then, Tim, they're going to come back to me. I might have another question, but I know I'm going to get into some New Jersey with you at that point. So I'm going to pass it to Catherine. Catherine? Looking forward to it. Hey, Kevin. Thanks so much for being on. It's really nice to get to know you a little bit and uh i did get a call from you the other day so i will return that i you left me a message um so i'm curious about what the strategy will be in georgia you know it's it's i've I've worked in georgia politics now for about a little over 20 years and uh, not as long as tim who you'll talk to next but you know we really have we have our rural uh, we have our urban our suburban, our exurban, and then our rural uh, areas. And we, we often get tangled up in, in the difference in values and needs. And, you know, like in the rural areas, we're really looking at health care and um, employment and uh, infrastructure. And then, of course, in urban areas, we're looking also at infrastructure and health care. But also crime, and I mean, crime is everywhere. But, mm-hmm. but I'm just wondering how, what kind of strategy you're going to use to make sure that we reach voters in all those areas without snubbing any of them. Yeah. So I think we got to do five things. And I, I like as I travel around the state and as I talk to people, the the thing I tell people is um, to win in Georgia, you have got to do more than just walk and chew gum at the same time. You've got to uh, juggle knives while walking across (laughs) hot coals and herding the cats to march in the same direction of the parade. It's doable, though. Um, That's the other thing I think that's really important for folks to know, that 
the, the evidence is clear that Democrats know how to do this and that we can do this when the conditions are right. So let's talk about the five things. Number one, you have got to recruit great candidates. Uh, we are only as good as the candidates that we have on the ballot, and so it matters in a real way that the folks who step up and put their names on the ballot are people from their communities who understand their communities that have the ability to rate, relate with people in those communities. Um, and part of the success that the party had in 2018, in my opinion, across the country, part of the success that it had in 22 when everyone said there was going to be a red wave that turned into more like a red ripple is because Democrats had infinitely better candidates on the ballot for the most part. Um, and even in cases where they lost, even in cases where Democrats took losses, it, candidate quality was not the issue, right? So that's the first thing you got to do. The second thing is you got to lead with your values. Um, and when I hear people talking about Democrats having a messaging problem, what I hear them saying is that Democrats are doing, not doing enough to communicate what their values are. Here's, how, here's the way I would actually describe this. You all were talking earlier about the Alabama Supreme Court case and about in vitro fertilization and by extension, right, the question about reproductive choice. And that's obviously going to be a really important issue for the Democratic Party in this upcoming election and in the elections to come. Um, but the reality is that that is a values-based conversation. How is it that we got to the place where the party that spouses individual freedom being a tenor of how they think about the world, right? Uh, on the question of religious liberty and the First Amendment, they want freedom. On the question of the Second Amendment, they want freedom. But when it comes to a woman's ability to make choices about her reproductive health care, all of a sudden that freedom goes out the window, right? And I think that that's sort of the way that we have to have these conversations is from a values perspective. The reality of this is whether you are living in a suburban environment, an ex-urban environment, if you're in rural Georgia, if you're in, the, in, in, in metro Atlanta, infrastructure matters to you, right? Having good roads and bridges, having broadband, having access to the internet, all of those things make it a quality of life better. And, and I think we need to be communicating from that values perspective to all of the people across the state, we do that well, we'll win. That's the second thing we've got to do. The third thing we've got to do is compete everywhere. Uh, when I was a young field organizer, the very last thing I ever wanted to hear from any door that I knocked or any phone call I ever had with a voter was, where the hell have you been since the last election? Y'all don't ever come around unless there's an election on the ballot. We just got to be in places and spaces, and we've got to work harder in places and spaces where that are not our natural constituencies. And so, you know, part of what we're going to be doing in the state is standing up, you know, organizing that is year-round, that doesn't depend on whether or not there's a candidate on the ballot or whether or not there's an election coming up and how we organize and what we're organizing about and what we're talking about with voters uh, is going to change. But what's important is that we have that running 24-7, 365 type conversation with voters across the state of Georgia. I think uh, when we do that, we win because you don't have to message people when you have a real relationship with them. You know, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and I don't have to message my son to get him to eat the chicken fingers and french fries that he asked for <laughs> for dinner, right? I just have the conversation with him because we have a relationship, because we understand each other, because I know what makes him tick. He knows what makes me tick. And so he knows that after he's eaten all the chicken fingers, he's got to eat the french fries too, <laughs> right? Even if they're not his favorite because he knows dad's going to be upset if he doesn't do that, right? Um, every one of us has that sort of relationship with folks either in our own families, in our own lives, uh, and we don't have to wait, many of us, until Thanksgiving before we have that kind of conversation, right? And so I think it's really important for the party to extend an olive branch and really reach out uh, to do the kind of supportive 
relationship building and connection building in every part of the state, whether it makes sense for us or not, whether we have strong constituencies or not, whether, you know, folks think we can win it or not, just by showing up and asking for the order, I think it makes a huge difference. So that's the third thing. The fourth and fifth are sort of uh, more strategic uh, for my purposes. Number four, we have got to protect every single legal vote that gets cast across the state. In my view, I have seen in, from afar, and I have seen even in the short time that I've been uh, executive director of the party, a real concerted effort to um, make the blocking and tackling and the self-executing part of elections that I took for granted every single election I ever worked in before maybe 2016, I've seen that kind of all be torn down in this new era of misinformation and stuff. And so um, if somebody casts a vote for a candidate, we got to make sure that we do everything to get make sure that those votes get counted. And we've got to do everything that we can to make sure that the integrity of those elections is something that we can be proud of at the end of the day. There are a lot of people that are going to be working really hard and volunteering their time, their energies, and their talents uh, to make our system work. And we need to reward that work by making sure that we do our part uh, on that front. And so we'll do that. And then the last thing I would just say is, like, this is sort of a global thing from 25,000 feet, but I I, I honestly do believe it, is – um, we've got to be forward-looking and talking about the future, right? Elections are not decided by what happens behind us, although what happens behind us informs our judgment about where we are going, right? It's the reason why incumbents, for example, have to be able to talk about their record in a cohesive way. It's not because you are patting them on the back for the stuff that they've done. It's because when they remind you of their record, what they are really telling you is that you can be trusted, they can be trusted with your future because they have demonstrated in the past that they share your values and that they are fighting for you. I think the candidates in this election that spend the time talking to real people, not with political speak, not with you know prepackaged talking points, but actually getting to the heart of the matter, of where people are and meeting them where they are. I think those are the candidates that are going to be successful, and frankly, I don't think that's a partisan issue. And so from my perspective, if Republicans do a better job of that on talking about things like the border, then they're going to win. You know, if if, if Democrats do a better job about that, talking about those issues as it relates to crime, for example, then we will win. I really fundamentally believe that um, folks are so cynical about politics. They are so cynical about this space. And um, we just need more people being more hopeful about where we are going and having the ability uh, to connect with people on that hopeful, positive vision of where we're going. Um, And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I really do believe at the end of the day that's what people are – going into the voting booth and doing at the end of the day, right? They are exchanging their vote for a basket of goodies for their families and their kids' future. And what they're trying to balance is who they believe is going to give them more goodies for their vote at the end of the day. Uh, And so Democrats just have to do a good job of being that hopeful, forward-looking voice Uh, And I believe that we have the capacity to do that. So if we do all those five things, maybe raise about, you know, a billion dollars, I think think we should be able to figure out how to get it all done. (laughs) That was actually my next question. Um, It's, I mean, I agree with everything. I'm especially happy to hear about like around the, you know, around the calendar you know, year year after year, not just an election year, I've always said that, you know, we should have billboards that say things like, like your five-day work week, thank a Democrat, or like your health care, thank a Democrat. 
things mm-hmm. like that because I don't think people rec- – sometimes I think people don't connect policy with politics, which mm-hmm. is crazy, but I think that we don't make those all those connections. Well, but sometimes so, it's not <laughs> even that, right? Sometimes it's just that, like, I'm so busy – living my life and trying to make ends meet that I just don't have the ability to check in with what Rachel Maddow's view of the world is at nine o'clock on Wednesday. Right. And and that's not like a slight to her. Right. It's just, you know, I am a single mother who's got two kids and I'm trying to make ends meet. And I just, I can, I can really only afford to check in every once in a while. And so, you know, it's good to hear from the party. Shame on us if we're not communicating to that person the same way we would the person who is, you know, listening to the political podcast on Sunday night, right? Like we have got to do a job of meeting people where they are. And, um, you know, in business, there's the adage that the customer is always right. In my, in my, in my space, the voter is always right. Right. And, 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 I may not agree with well, the choice that they make, but they, they make the choice. And our job is to give them all the information, all the things that they need to be able to draw the sharp contrast between a democratic vision of America and Georgia and a Republican one. And I think if we don't do that job well, then frankly we have nobody else to blame but ourselves. Well, this sounds great, Kevin. I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk. And I'm really looking forward to to this vision. I think it's fantastic. And I know Tim has questions for you, so I'm going to pass you on to him. And I look forward to seeing all the work that you're going to be doing. Appreciate thank you, you, thank you, thank you. Tim? Uh, good evening, Mr. Director. Thank you for being on with us. Uh, I just got a couple of quick questions in the interest of time. Um, been looking at what our friends in the state legislature have been up to. That's always of great interest. And this little gem popped up. I'm sure you've heard about it. Uh, Senate Bill 221. Now, this one would stop automatic voter registration in Georgia. Yeah. And and something tells me if they pass this, uh they would use this as an opportunity to purge the voter rolls by many thousands of voters uh, in an election year. Uh, uh, am I right about that? I think anybody who's paying attention to what has happened in Georgia should be concerned about the Senate bill and should be doing everything they can to oppose it. Look, elections are really, really easy. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent, you put your name on the ballot, you go out, you tell people what you're about, you tell people who you are, you tell people what you're going to do for them, and you let the people make the decision. And too often in the state of Georgia, at least recently anyway, Republicans have tried and in some cases been successful changing the rules of the game in the middle of the game. Now, I'm one of those people who, sitting in my chair, often doesn't have the luxury of complaining about the way the refs are calling the game, to use an analogy, right? Like, you know, if, if, if we're on the football field and they're letting the wide receivers and the, and the defensive backs go at it and they're not throwing the flag – I don't get to complain about the way it should be. I have to I have to call the game the way I see it. Right? But this is one of those instances where before we start playing the game in quotes, we ought to be asking ourselves the question, is this legitimately who we think Georgians want to be? Is this the place that we want to be? Do we really want to make it harder for people to vote, not easier? And then think about all the steps that we are going to take to put this kind of automatic voter registration blockages in place. And I just think, you know, I have to ask the question out loud. What is it that Republicans are afraid of? What are they so afraid of that the idea that we would make it easier for people 
to register to vote, not even to actually vote, right? Because there's no guarantee that somebody who is a registered voter will actually show up on election day, right? That's what the campaigns are about, is to give them a reason to do it. But the idea that we would make it harder for people to just register is absolutely absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And what it suggests is that Republicans know that they are on the wrong side of the issues on the merits. So rather than have the contest of ideas that the framers of the Constitution who built this thing put together, they want to rig the game. And look, I, I, I hope that with everything in me, that Senate Bill 221 does not pass the legislature. I hope that the governor vetoes it if it does. I hope it never becomes law, but I have my doubts. And so, again, I go back to the place that I started with, which is while it's unfortunate that this is the place that we're in, and I'm hopeful still that, you know, um, cooler heads will prevail, I'm also going to be keenly focused on figuring out once they change the rules of the game yet again, how do I win? Uh, and that's and that's what we'll do at the DPG. Yeah, uh, I want to jump right quick to a little congressional talk, and then I'll throw it over to David. As you know, our Republican friends very cleverly redrew the congressional lines when they were ordered to do so earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did it, you know, to, of course, protect their majority status, which, you know, that would be expected when you're gerrymandering. But every time they draw, redraw lines, it seems that a prime target is Representative McBath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just wondering why you think that is. Is it because her main issue is guns, or, or, or why is it they seem to view her as their main target at the Congress? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of things, right? It's number one, definitely, I think, her strong position informed by her life experience on the issue of the Second Amendment and trying to make, you know, our community safer by reducing gun violence is obviously an anathema to a lot of things that Republicans at the state and the federal level believe in, right? Um, I also think that, you know, when it comes to gerrymandering specifically, I, you can count me among those who are disappointed but not so frustrated by the whole thing because the reality of this is they can slow down progress, but they can't stop it. Right. And and I think that's actually what's happening in the gerrymandering conversation, right, is like Republicans are seeing that demographic shifts are happening and they are real and they are trending in the wrong direction. That's one. Two, they understand that they are on the wrong side of almost every single issue of consequence that people care about. Um, and I'm reminded of of the 2020 Republican National Convention, the virtual one, in which the Republican Party did not pass out a platform, like at all, Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. on any issue whatsoever. And so I think legitimately when people say, what do Republicans stand for? That's not like a pejorative or a joke. Like it's a legitimate, like we don't know what they stand for because they did not put out a policy platform where we could go, okay, that's what their position is on uh, immigration or that's what their position is. And maybe that's the reason why it's been so easy for Republicans in Congress to change their mind after we give them the thing that they asked for, right? Because they don't really stand for anything. Um, Yeah. Look, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all the sort of tricks, that they use in the toolbox are, again, about slowing down the progress that's happening in Georgia, but they know they can't stop it. Um, And it gives me a lot of confidence then that what Democrats are doing are the right things uh, and that we are much more adaptable to whatever rules they want to play with. So, you know, I just, I want to get to a place where I understand how the game is being called. And then I want to get to the fourth quarter and I want to call the game and see if they can call the game better than I can. 
right? And and all right. And I well, legitimately that, I, believe that Democrats can do that better. All right, and I'm going to throw it back to David because I know before we close out, he's got some questions about New Jersey, David. Yes, uh, Kevin, I would love to talk to you more about Georgia too because uh, there's so many great things to discuss. But we got we had you since you've you know lived and worked in New Jersey uh, so many years. You're probably the most familiar person with the state we've had on, or at least had on in quite a while. So they have a Senate race. Um, there's the incumbent, Bob Menendez, who is running for reelection, but probably is the weakest incumbent running for reelection that I can remember in recent memory because of his um, ethical dilemmas, let's just say. And so uh, multiple candidates have announced against him, including uh, Congressman Andy Kim and First Lady Tammy Murphy. Just give us the, the quick overview of the Senate race, I guess particularly on the Democratic primary side. Yeah, so um, uh, you all know this, but I'll say it for your listeners. Um, I ran the state party in New Jersey uh, for a couple of years uh, between 2019 and the end of 2020, so I'm very intimately familiar with many of the folks that you just mentioned. I will say this. While Senator Menendez is technically running, he has no infrastructure or campaign uh, product to speak of. I mean, I you know, you drive the highways here, you don't hear anything on the radio, you don't see anything on TV. It's the weirdest thing, right? It's like you think he would just drop out and maybe bow out, but the what for whatever reason he is defiant. Um, but again, not doing the things that you would think an incumbent would do if they were legitimately trying to run a campaign. And so, in my opinion, this actually is a race between. Uh, the First Lady, Tammy Murphy, and Congressman Andy Kim. Um, Let me say this about Congressman Kim. I don't know if there is a Democrat who has run in a more difficult district to win in in the entire country. Before Congressman Kim was reelected the second time in 2020, a Democrat had not won two consecutive terms in New Jersey's third congressional district since Reconstruction. That's how difficult that race has been. Now, it's certainly gotten a little bit better because of redistricting, um, which I think is the reason, frankly, that the congressman felt he could run for Senate is because he knows the district is in a much better place than it was when he started running there in 2018. But this guy is bright. He is articulate. He is compassionate. I'll never forget the photos of Andy Kim inside of the Capitol right after January 6th helping the the staff clean up the, in the Capitol Rotunda. That is legitimately who Andy Kim is. He is as dyed-in-the-wool a Democrat as you will ever find. He served his country uh, um, not just in Congress but uh, in the United States military and I think the world of him, but I also think he's um, he's got an uphill battle here in the Senate race. Um, you know, um, people maybe don't know this, but the energy and the engine that has been really powering the Phil Murphy uh, political um, operation has been Tammy Murphy. She is an incredible asset to the governor. Uh, as first lady, she's worked on a ton of issues, including um, infant mortality and reducing um, the disparities in that space um, for black and, and, and other families, uh, people of color. Um, she's a dynamic, dynamic fundraiser, and she's a really good small P real tail politician. Um, as I kind of look at the political landscape here, um, one of the things that makes Um, New Jersey a little bit different than other states is that the county parties have a lot to say in terms of how electoral politics gets played. That's partially because uh, there's a a very unique statute that allows for county parties to place um, uh, candidates on the ballot in specific places. Uh, And so Um, It's going to be really critically important for Congressman Kim to do better than he has been doing in the county party part of this analysis. 
I think he's trailing on the county party endorsements in a fairly major way, and that could potentially be dispositive for him. I know that he's got a lot of support from folks outside groups um, that are on the more progressive side of the party, and they're certainly uh, doing everything they can to be helpful. And so depending on, you know, who you talk to and what polls you see, you might see Congressman Kim's support maybe a little bit higher than the first ladies, but I don't I don't know how long that's going to last. To be frank, I think the more that people get to know Tammy Murphy, the more they're going to like her. And I'll say this last thing: New Jersey has never elected a woman to represent it in the United States Senate, and I know that there are a ton of women who are going to show up to vote in that Democratic primary in Georgia who are relishing the opportunity to have somebody that looks like them, who shares their experiences, represent them in the Senate. And so, you know, look, if I had to guess, uh, I I would say today, uh, I think Tammy Murphy is going to be very, very difficult to beat. Um, And I think, you know, um, she's going to put together the kind of infrastructure that is necessary to win and win by a mile. And it's, you know, I think the insiders know that, and that's why they've been flocking to her to give her the endorsements and get get behind her. She's racked up all of the in-state endorsements that matter. She just got Emily's list at the national level. She's going to get more of those, Um, and I think that's going to position her well for the final 90-day stretch between now and, and June's primary. Yes, well, I did want to ask you kind of one tough question, and it just came out late in the week. Um, you know, this this uh, race is kind of two pictures now. One's that way we got introduced to Andy Kim on the, you know, Congress floor on January 6th, um, the rotunda cleaning up. But there was a photo that came out just this past week of Tammy Murphy, I believe her husband, others in the photo. It's, it's a group photo, but it also includes Ivanka Trump, and Jared Kushner. Have you seen the photo? Because if you hadn't seen it, it's hard to respond to it. But if you've seen it, what do you think the impact of that photo may be? So I haven't seen it. I think um, um, I, I, but I have seen similar photos like this in 2018 when I was running the state party in, in, in Rhode Island. There's a photo of Alan Fung, the Republican gubernatorial nominee. He had a photo of himself standing outside of the uh, 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 the Capitol Rotunda on Inauguration Day in 2017, wearing a uh, vi- visibly wearing a uh, Make America Great Again winter cap. Uh, and as you might imagine, that soured people on, on, on him in a real way and kind of colored, I think, this kind of conversation about who who is this guy really? Does he really share the, your values? Called into question that kind of stuff. I suspect that that's what that's going to do is just, you know, make people wonder whether or not she is actually who she says she is. Uh, I happen to know Tammy Murphy very well, and I, I know Congressman Kim fairly well, but not nearly as well as I know Tammy. So I may be a little bit biased in saying this. I just think she is the real deal and look every campaign at any level has to weather some kind of adversity you actually don't know what kind of a campaign you are if you just skate and sail through the whole thing and so i suspect that um you know they'll have some tough questions to answer and there'll be ads and mail pieces and i can't wait to see some of the digital ads that'll come from some of those photos but at the end of the day, she'll be resourced well. She's going to have uh, 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 one hell of a campaign. I think she's the right kind of candidate for the right kind of time, and I, I would be very surprised if she's not able to prevail, notwithstanding some of the things that are going to come her way. Yes, and kind of a weird defense. I kind of think this photo ought to be shown to a lot of these hardcore Trump photo folks because probably – Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, and even Donald Trump aren't who those people think they are. They well, want not, something, and they're not getting what they want either. They're getting somebody from uh, New York City. Well, and I would also say this, that um, uh, New Jerseyans have a very different view of the Trump family 
and you know then then maybe most maybe outside of New York, given sort of the the Trump Hotel down in Atlantic City and some of the things that have happened there. I will say this though, of all of the Trumps, um, you know Ivanka and Jared Kushner have better reputations, all things being equal. <laughs> I don't know how great I, I, I'm trying to be as complimentary as I possibly can. I think what I'm trying to say is people hate them least of all the Trumps. <laughs> uh, maybe Baron Trump has a little bit higher name uh, 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 approval rating, all things being equal in the Trump family. But uh, look, I, you know, I, you know, Ivanka's um, and Jared have both got their fair share of things that they've got to work through. The Murphys are, they've had an opportunity to be exposed to a lot of people. They've, um, you know, for every photo that they have with um, the Trumps, they'll have photos with John Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen and all the other kind of New Jersey political uh, celebrities that, are, that exist. I, I, you know, if the best that the detractors of the Murphy family can come up with is a photo of, you know, the Murphys and the Trumps, they've, they've got a lot more work to do to, to, to take her down. She's, she's a lot tougher than that. And it's going to take a whole hell of a lot more than that, in my opinion, to get it done. Yes. I do think this is going to be one of the most interesting primaries. It's probably the Pennsylvania race of this year. Um, so it'll be one to watch. Well, for uh, sure. And, I, and I'll say this on the last thing, you know, um, it's not to be discounted that Andy Kim is also a person of color. He'd be the first Asian American person to represent uh, New Jersey in Congress. And I know that there are people here who very much want to see him win. And, and I think the world of him and everything else, I just think as a, as a sort of strategist kind of, you know, surveying the field and seeing who's done what and what kind of infrastructure they've built, you know, I, I would say, it's going to be really tough, I think, to knock Tammy Murphy off in this race, in my opinion. Yes. Well, I got good news, bad news. In 2026, John Ossoff is running for re-election, so we're going to have a, a clean Democratic primary to re-elect Senator Ossoff. But then on the uh, congressional or the constitutional side, it's going to be all open seats. Oh, the down. more the merrier, so, David. The more the merrier. Get them all in. I want yeah. Marjorie Taylor. I want Marjorie Taylor Green to run. Uh, let them all get in. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So it'll it'll be the other side. We'll get all kind of contested primaries on that. But at least the Senate race, you'll, you'll get a break on the primary side. Well, um. I thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we want, we're looking forward to all the great work you're going to do over the next two and really, I guess, four years, because I see this as at least a four-year plan because of 2026. Um, and thanks so much for coming on the show. And maybe at some point we can carve out some more time with you. I appreciate it, y'all. Anytime. Um, thanks for doing such great work and giving me an opportunity to share what's going on. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank y'all you. Y'all take care. Bye-bye. Right, that was uh, Executive Director of the Democratic Party of Georgia, Kevin Alassanoi. Uh, so glad to have him on tonight. Um, next week, we're real excited. Um, Bill Snyder is going to be on the show for, I can't believe I'm saying this, like the fourth time he's got a new Substack, And so we're going to talk to absolutely one of the most astute, long-term political observers um, in American politics in the, you know, really 20th and now 21st century. So that's going to be our guest next week. Until then, then the Kudzu Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime.